source of true delight, through my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. From Judges today, we've been in a study of Judges since the first of the year. Uh, and we're going to focus on the death of Christ. And it's found, the, the text, in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, if you're reading from the Pew Bible, that's the blue book in front of you, if you're visiting, it's on page 973. That makes it easy. <laughs> page 973. Now, there is a, a historical re, uh, account of something that happened when Cephas, that is, Peter, came to Antioch, and then there's teaching that follows this. And it's this teaching that follows it that we're going to focus on, but we have to understand what this historical situation is, what was going on, and not only what was going on at that point, but this really kind of shows what's going on in the Jewish mind in general. And uh, only as we understand something of that can we uh, figure out what Paul is intending in this. But the thing, I, uh, yeah, and and also you'll see when we get to verses 15 and following, if you've got a New Yorker Standard or New International Version, it continues the quotation marks all the way through verse 21. So it treats this whole section as, as having been said at that time when this event occurred with Peter. Now, we're not sure. It, it could be that the whole thing was said then. It could be part of this was said then, and then he moves on to talk to the Galatians. But at least by chapter 3, verse 1, he's addressing the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. So somewhere in there, we move from that event that occurred in Antioch to addressing the Galatians. But I like to think of it as, in a sense as Peter's calling everybody into the room. Okay, Peter... All you Jews and all you Galatians, let's talk about what happened. Let's, let's talk about what this means. Okay, so something of that, I think, would be the feel of how to read this passage. And he's already talked about the gospel in chapter 1, that anybody who preaches a different gospel, distort this gospel, may they be cursed. So he's concerned that people are distorting the gospel to the point of preaching a different gospel, which he says is not really different. You know, it's just another gospel. It's not even gospel anymore. And he hints already at some of what this means because he talks about when he went to Jerusalem and they were trying to get some of the Gentiles that visited with Paul to be circumcised. And he says in chapter 2, verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this matter of circumcising the Gentiles to Paul was a matter of the gospel itself, life and death, the gospel, what it means to all peoples. And you'll see that phrase again, something like that, in this account 
uh, with Peter. So there, just to let you know, this is the whole of Galatians dealing with the essence, the critical nature of the gospel. And that's why he went uh, crazy, so to speak, when Peter did what he did in Antioch. Okay, verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And that means it's obvious that he stood condemned. Okay, For before certain men came from James, this means people from Jerusalem who were part of this group that thought you needed to stick to Jewish rituals, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, there's that phrase again, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew normally, how can you then force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then just continue straight from that, and you can see how he's including Peter and the Jews in this because he, he begins by saying, we ourselves are Jews. So he, he's still, in a sense, speaking to Peter here and those Jewish people. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And there he's speaking about basic Jewish categories. They call themselves the people of God. Everybody else are sinners. In fact, the word Gentile and the word sinner are kind of exchangeable, okay, in, in Jewish thinking. He's a Gentile, oh, you mean, or he's a sinner. It's the same thing. So we've got these two categories. Yet, he said, though that's what we have said, Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, see he's, he's speaking to those Jewish Christians who are acting so hypocritically. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to, to God. If those three verses, 17 and 18 and 19, don't make sense to you, join the club, okay? They're very, very hard, and history of interpretation has demonstrated that. I want to focus a good bit of attention on verse 20 today because it focuses on the, the crucifixion of Christ and what it means to our life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's the reading of God's Word. I think for uh, a lot of Christians, sadly, the, the death of Christ becomes this little item that we, 
know about, we've learned about, and we just put it on the shelf, and it basically sits up there. It's this little piece of knowledge. And anybody, anytime anybody mentions the death of Christ, you say, yeah, I know that. I got it. I've already learned that. I, I have it. I don't need to hear anything more about it. And this passage indicates that, no, the death of Christ defines every minute of your life and defines everything that you do. And you do not live properly in Christ without a constant realization that I have been crucified with Christ. This is how you must live as a believer. So rather than it being something set on a shelf, it is something that you operate and use every single day. For many of us, it's like your phone, okay? It's like something that's constantly a part of you and you can't function without it, okay? Not to liken Christ to a phone, but I'm, I'm likening the usefulness and the, the central place that it is in everything that you do. And you can't even imagine living apart from that knowledge. You can't imagine fighting sin apart from that knowledge. You can't imagine ultimately even loving your wife or your children or your neighbor apart from the knowledge of, I am crucified with Christ. That's how vital this is to us, how critical it is to us. Now, this, this comes, interestingly, in wake of this experience that he had with Peter, right? This experience where when the, these people who felt like you had to continue doing the Jewish things, like being circumcised and the sacrifices and obeying the particular laws that the Jews had set up in separating themselves from Gentiles, if you didn't do these things, obviously you weren't really in close with God. And the implication is you're really not accepted by God, which means that the work of Christ has really not made you acceptable on its own. That's the serious nature of what's going on here. The uh, Jewish uh, view at this time It's rather complicated in some ways, but here's a short version of it. The the Bible, as Paul describes it later in in, uh, Galatians 3, was built this way. There was promise in Abraham. Then law came along, which he says did not negate the promise, which means that the promise of faith alone, the promise of depending upon God's grace and mercy alone for our salvation and depending upon Him for grace to live out uh, a life under God. This defined what life with God is. The law didn't take that away, but rather this faith was to be exercised in the context of this law. And the law... The former promise pointed to an ultimate fulfillment of that promise in Christ Jesus. And he says the law acted as a further guardian to push us and point us to Christ. So everything is pointing to Christ. Everything is supposed to be suffused with faith so that we're dependent upon the mercy of God. For instance, circumcision, as we've said before, was a sign that you need a new heart. Every one of you, okay? Every one of you Jews needs to be circumcised of heart. You need a change within you because you're fundamentally 
twisted and wrong. That was what the, the, the proclamation of circumcision was to humble them. That we of all people, it, to us in particular, it's declared, we must have a new heart. We must have a change that can only come from God. The sacrifices are to point to that same thing. We're absolutely dependent upon a substitute to die in our place so that we can receive forgiveness. The sense of Psalm 51 of confessing sin as David did and relying completely upon the grace of God for forgiveness. Or as it's expressed in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. See, that, that was the way of blessedness, living out this forgiveness, this mercy from God and the dependence upon him for a changed life. But what was supposed to be suffused with faith and pointing to the ultimate faith in Christ Jesus had become for the Jews only that of works. That is, in this sense, that they no longer looked to the promise to suffuse the law and the law didn't look to a future promise of faith, but it was cut off from faith. And so these things like circumcision, instead of becoming a humbling thing to cause them all the more to trust in the mercy of God, it became a badge of honor, a badge of recognition, a badge of privilege, a badge that they could parade around and say, you know, we're just better than other people. We, we have a privilege that other people don't have. And they would treat the sacrifices in the same way. So the sacrifice, instead of being something to humble you and cause you to be broken before God, is something that you could, that's another one I did, and another one I did, and another one I did. Like having an eight-year attendance badge for Sunday school, you know, and being so proud of it and looking down your nose at people that don't go to Sunday school, those poor people that don't do that. This was a common view, and we see it in uh, Jesus' parable of the publican and the Pharisee. We won't go into that, but in Luke 18, you see this expressed so well in the comparison of these two men. And so they took these things and their election from God and they wrapped themselves in them in a sense as a protection against any need of God's saving grace. They turned them into accomplishments. They turned them into rules that they could keep Sacrifices became badges. Circumcision became a badge. And in that kind of thinking, the special focus was on these outward rituals. These became the real touchstones of whether you were really in with God or not. To have done the circumcision, to keep the food laws, to keep the Sabbath. You can see this in the Gospels where there's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus is about to heal him. And they're, this is in uh, Mark. And they're studying him. They're looking to him to see if he's going to disobey God on the Sabbath. Of course, there's no law in the Old Testament, but it was a Jewish law. You couldn't do such a thing on the Sabbath. And it says Jesus was grieved in his heart. He says he was angry at their hardness of heart. Another occasion where they did the same thing about the Sabbath. They says, you know what you need to do? You need to go and ask yourself what this means. I desire mercy instead of sacrifice. He's not quoting from somewhere. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Okay? He's quoting from the Testament. He says, 
you don't understand what the Word is about. You're focused on all of these outward things and you despise people. You don't live by mercy. You don't care about mercy. You don't care about this man with the withered hand. You just care about your rule. He got angry about it. Because the whole heart of the Old Testament, what Jesus says, is loving God and loving others. That was gone by the wayside. They weren't focused on these things any longer. And that's why Jesus could say in Matthew 5, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Because what is their righteousness? It's like this. <laughs> they fast so that other people can see them fasting. They pray and let you know that they're praying. They give so you can see they're giving. That's not obedience. That's not a heart love to God and a devotion to other people. That's all about yourself. You're doing these things just to gain more glory for yourself. And in the meantime, you despise those who are different from you, who, those who are outside of the band of people that keep the rules. And that's why he would say things like, it's not just that you can say, well, I hadn't murdered, I hadn't actually committed adultery. That's not the heart of it. The real heart of pleasing God is that you even want to please Him in your thoughts because you really love Him because you're really broken over your sin and you're trusting in Him for mercy. And so you desire to please Him in everything you do. That's, that's what the Word's really about. So instead of understanding their sin and God's grace that would make them embrace any sinner, And in this context, to embrace the Gentiles and say, yes, brothers, you and I are the same kind of sinners in need of the same kind of grace of God and the same dependence upon Christ, and nothing we do can change that. No, even then, they were saying, you know, until you do these things and accomplish what we've done, you're really not acceptable to God. And you're not acceptable to us, and we can't eat with you. You can see how blasphemous this was to say, in a sense, you're still sinners. Even though Jesus has died for you, even though you've trusted in Messiah, you're still sinners, and we must separate ourselves from you because you don't have the works that we have. You don't have the goodness that we have, the obedience to the law that we have that has brought us into a different, more favorable relationship with God. What a demeaning of Christ and his work. What's the use of Christ then, you could say? That's why he could say in verse 21, if I go back to do that and justify myself through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, what's the point of the Son of God dying for sinners if it just got you so far and you've got to tack on the rest of it? What blasphemy. So they're baptized into the same Lord, but you can't eat with them. You can say, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, but you're proposing that. Oh, I'll separate you from the love of Christ. I'll separate you from the love of God. Because you are not like us. You don't do the things that we do. That's the situation. The very sad situation. And you see, here's the point. 
the Jews in this stage of their history, by and large, didn't trust Yahweh at all. And that's why when Yahweh's Messiah came, they didn't trust Him. All Jesus did was manifest their rejection of God because when God came in the flesh, they rejected Him. Was it that suddenly they became unbelievers? They were already unbelieving. They already were not entrusting themselves to God's mercy. They already were not broken before Him and dependent upon Him. And here's the dangerous thing. You can use obedience to keep yourself away from God. You can use going to church to keep yourself away from dependence upon God's mercy. And there are many, many people. It's a danger for all of us that we are so good. We've done to church so much. We've read our Bible so much. We've done so many things in the church. We're cushioned against depending upon Christ like these other poor people might have to. And then, obviously, as Jesus said at the end of that parable with the publican and the Pharisee, which one is justified before God? Which one is accepted before God? Well, it was the publican who cried helplessly, have mercy on me. It wasn't the Pharisee that kind of paraded his goodness in front of God. He said, he's condemned. He's condemned. And this publican, this tax gatherer who lived such a wicked life but was dependent upon God's mercy, he's the one that was justified. He's the one that was forgiven. So for Paul, you see, it wasn't just a matter of a clash between two apostles. You know, Peter and I had a disagreement on this issue. You know, yeah, Peter saw it one way, I saw it another way. You know, it's not going on here. It's not just a clash between two sides of Christianity. This is a clash and, and concerns the one and only basis of salvation for people everywhere. It concerns the gospel itself. As he says here, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, most commentators would say, Cephas, Peter, believed the same things as Paul. He believed the same things as Paul. But in this particular circumstance, he, he denied what he knew. He was scared. He didn't do the right thing. And hopefully, kind of the understanding that through this process and through Paul's rebuke, he and hopefully these other men were, were called back to the grace of the gospel. But if anyone would say, no, Paul, you're not right. We don't see it as hypocrisy. This is the way we're going to live. Then that, that's very dangerous, you know, very dangerous. But the hope and the, the understanding of this passage is that this call Peter back from something that was fearful. And, and you think of Peter that night when he denied Christ, that perhaps he fell back into that, see, fell back in a tendency that he had to, to look at people's eyes and, and bend his principles because of that. Maybe that will give you a little encouragement too, that if even apostles struggle, maybe it's okay, not okay, but you're not lost if you struggle. <laughs> you're not lost if you mess up. Because Peter definitely messed up in a terrible way here. Now, 
Paul goes on here, and I know I've taken a long time to present this uh, situation, but I think it's so important to, to have it, especially to try to understand how he moves forward. Uh, in verses 15 and 16, he says, look, we, we Jews, and he's saying, Peter, you and you others who are with Peter who claim to be Christians, yet you're acting this way. These weren't Jews. These were Christian Jews acting this way, see? These weren't people who had rejected Christ. These are people that had said, we profess Christ and still were separating ourselves from Gentiles. And he says, look, we... Even though we say we're Jews by birth and not like Gentile sinners, he says, we've basically taken the position of Gentile sinners and said, we can't be justified by just this doing of the law. We've, we've pushed that aside. And three times he says here, we are justified. We are made right with God. We are declared righteous before God only through Jesus Christ. This announcement by God, this, this declaration of justification which means I'm protected by the sanction, the punishment of the law. I'm protected from the judgment of God. I go out from God acquitted. That's what justification means. Amazing. It's like an emancipation. You come in guilty and you hear amazingly that you are declared not guilty. You're acquitted. Though you know you're guilty. And that's the precious phrase in Romans 4, verse 5, it says, He justifies the ungodly. You see, the, the righteous, the, the self-righteous people, they don't like to hear that. Justifies the ungodly. I'm not ungodly. What do you mean? I've been in church my whole life. I try to do what's right all the time. I, I've taught Sunday school. You don't know how long I've taught Sunday Don't call me ungodly. But for somebody who really trust Christ and really sees your sin, you, you love that phrase. You, oh, you love that phrase. Wow, he justifies the ungodly. There's hope for me. He will justify even me as much as I've sinned against him. All the evil that I know that has been in my heart, my rejection of God, my rejection of prayer, my rejection of Christ, all, he would forgive it. He justifies the ungodly. That's what Paul is declaring here. We're not holding on to something we've done. We're not holding on to circumcision or, or by implication too. It's not just these things, but the whole of this idea that I could do something that would earn God's pleasure. I could do something apart from the promise that would make me right with God. Only, it's only through Christ that He makes me right before Him. We could spend more time with this, but that's, that's uh, on, on the road to get to verse 20. So he says, look, even we, even we Jews have taken this place outside the law to say we trust in Christ alone. He's the only way we can be declared righteous. Then he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners as Christ in a servant of sin. What does he mean? He means that if... By seeking to be justified by Christ, according to Jewish law, we've now become sinners. Okay, According to the Jewish understanding of things, we're the same as Gentile sinners in verse 15. Does that mean Christ is just producing sinners? <laughs> just making sinners because you, you have to leave the law to 
depend upon him, and, and he uses in the strongest term, may it never be. He is not a servant of sin. He's not causing people to be sinners in this way. Although from a Jewish perspective, that's what they would say. So you've got all these people safe, protected in the law, and now they keep leaving the law into the dangerous place of being sinners outside of the law. This Jesus is just making sinners. No, no, that's not what's going on. In, in fact, he reverses it in verse 19. He says, in fact, it's this way. If I rebuild what I tore down, in other words, if having left these works of the law, I go back to the works of the law and try to rebuild them. If I do that, then I'm a transgressor of the law. Then, number one, I've put myself back under the power of this law to try to obey it, to try to use it to earn righteousness with God, to pit my weak self against this perfect and beautiful law. And if I do that, I will be a transgressor of it. I will be under its domination. And more importantly, I think, I will show that I'm disobeying its true end because its true end is not to make me try to obey it to win favor with God, but its true end is to point me to Christ. And so he says, actually... It is only by depending upon Christ that I reach the true end of the law, which was a a guardian to point me to Jesus. Always, always to point me to faith. And so I'll really be a transgressor if I try to go back into that law and abuse it and misuse it. For it was never meant for itself. It was meant to point me to Christ. And then, verse 19, For through the law... I died to the law that I might live to God. And this is very interesting that Paul can say, through the law, I died to the law. And in this way, the the Scripture teaches, and we don't have time to go into all that Galatians 3 says, but it does teach that the law, as a guardian, points us to Christ. And here's an amazing thing in Scripture. Paul can say this, about the law in Romans 3. Do we overthrow the law by our faith in Christ? Because you might think that we just wholesale throw, overthrow the law by our faith in Christ. That would be the Jews' uh, accusation. But he says there in Romans 3.31, by no means, again, this is uh, the strongest way you can say it, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Isn't that strange? Uphold the law. That's the same word that's used in the Old Testament when God says, I establish my my covenant with you. I establish. And and so the law is actually established, is actually upheld, I think, by its ultimate purpose to get us to Christ when we trust in Christ. And that's why Paul goes on right there to say, what was it with Abraham? It was by faith. What was it with David? It was by faith. The law in its proper sense is pointing us to faith, not our own works, as a way to trust in God. And as an example that Paul's not doing away with the whole law itself, in Gal- later here in Galatians 5.14, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Paul talks about dying to the law, he's not talking about dying to this statement like the whole of the law 
is about this, loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, I've died to all that. I've died to loving my neighbor. See, that's not what he means. The law has no effect on me. I've died to all that stuff. Loving God and loving others. I don't do that anymore. I've died to that. So that cannot be what Paul is meaning here. In fact, he addresses us about love in Galatians 5.14 and tries to reinforce its importance to us by appealing to the law. Look, you love one another because that's the fulfillment of the law. That's how important it is to love one another. That's what the law is all about. So what have we died to when it says we've died to this? We've died to, here are two things, and I think these are so important for us. We've died to the situation in which, in our own weakness, we tried to obey the word. We tried to obey the law. We've died to that whole effort. And again and again, in Romans and other places, Paul talks about how deadly it is when we take our native ability and try to obey the law. We're never going to do it. We can't do it. We can't fulfill that word. We can't obey it. He, and, and then because of that, we are condemned by that law. The law keeps condemning us and putting us under guilt because we cannot obey it. Paul describes it like a treadmill. He describes it in this way in Romans 8 too, that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from this principle of sin and death. Sin and death. That was your life. That's the only life you can live when you pit yourself against that word. That word is so glorious and so beautiful that when you stand yourself up against it, it just doesn't look good. It's like if you saw a picture of a guy, and maybe this wouldn't be healthy for you too, but... You see a, a, a guy, he's 21 years old, he's in his bathing suit, and he's just ripped, okay? Like a Greek god, perfect. His face is chiseled, everything's perfect. And then you bring up beside that a picture of me in my bathing suit, okay? Ooh, yeah, I know, uh, ooh, don't, don't even think it, okay? But every feature of my body would be shown in its pathetic nature at that point, right? And it would be seen all the more pathetic. Like if you saw me separate from that, you'd think that's pathetic. And then you put me up beside, ooh, that's really, really, really pathetic. And then you can imagine me at 60 plus years old saying, I'm going to look like that. I'm going to make my skin look new and fresh and young. I'm going to make these wrinkles disappear. I'm going to clean everything up so I look just like that. And you'll be thinking, dude, dude, give it up. Give it up. No matter what you do, no matter what you do, you're not going to even be close, even the ballpark of that. You see, this is, this is the glory and the beauty of the love that the, that the law describes and how far we are from that. How far we are from that. And that's why all along we can only depend upon the mercy of God. We can only depend upon His forgiveness. And now this forgiveness and now this dependence upon God is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
actually, it's through the law that I die to the law because the law brings me to this place and says, you've got nowhere to go but Christ. You must die to any hope that on your own you're going to somehow meet this standard, somehow fulfill this work. You can't, you won't. So through the law, I die to it. And now the law can no longer condemn me. Now the law no longer holds me down. And no longer am I running against it like a brick wall, just blooding my face, my moral face, my moral nose over and over again because I just can't fulfill it. I can't. I can't do that law. And so here I've been... The same phrase, interesting now, look. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, that seems strange. I died to this crushing sin and death turmoil and treadmill of the law so that now I can live to God. And this death to the law is rooted in what? In the crucifixion of Christ. Really, those two phrases could be pulled together. I died to the law. In other words, and this is how it happened, I was crucified with Christ. So through Christ, having paid, the having borne the curse of the law, so that the law no longer condemns me, and I die to all that the law could hold me by, also, he says, now, I don't even live anymore, but Christ lives in me. And that indicates the new strength that I have, the new life that I have to live out a new obedience to the law. So I've, the, the, the self is now dethroned. Uh, this self that focused on me, this self that wouldn't glorify God, uh, this self that was so weak before the law, this self is now gone. It can, he uses a kind of exaggeration here as though I don't even exist anymore, you know. Of course I do, because he goes in the next phrase and say, I now live out uh, in the flesh by faith of the Son of God. But it, it's an emphatic way to say, the old me, the old life I had of weakness and sin and death is gone. Crucifixion indicates the absolute finishing of that. It emphasizes the finality of this death that's put an end to my old life. I no longer have that life. I'm no longer that person. I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. And it uses the perfect tense, I had been crucified. This indicates that it happened and it continues. So it's my settled way of life. It has not lost its power since. I'm always the one crucified with Christ. I'm always, I'm no longer under the lordship of that sin and death routine. I'm under the lordship of Christ, and his life is in me. So so definitive is his life, so operative is his power that he gives me, it can say, Christ lives in me. Technically, it means that, of course, he's given us his spirit, and his spirit indwells us, and so his life is in us. But he could say it this way, it's Christ that lives in me, his new life. And what do you think that new life in Christ that is so powerful and so bold, what do you think it's going to be oriented to? This Son of God, as he says here, who loved me and gave himself for me. What do you think that life's going to look like? 
maybe it's going to look like love, right? If he's, his life is in me, if Christ is living out his life in me, what's it going to look like? It's going to be marked by love. It's going to be marked by the one who loved me and gave himself for me. No surprise then when he gets to talking about this new life in Galatians 5. He says the fruit of the Spirit is, number one, let's all say it together, love, joy, peace, etc., which many think are just expositions of that one thing, love. That's the evidence that Christ is in me because I now am manifesting the very love of that Christ who died for me. That's a whole new principle, a whole new way to think about life than struggling in my own weakness, in my own flesh, against a law that's so perfect and beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's everything wrong with me. As Paul could say about that law in Romans 8, that the law was weak. The law can't change us. The law can't enable us to do what it demands and the beauty that it holds forth, it can't create that beauty in us. Only Christ can. And Christ definitely does. So you see, the intention of the law, which was to love your neighbor as yourself, is fulfilled in Christ as he causes us to die to our old life, die to our uh, the law to be our master and sin to be our master. And now Jesus is our master and his life is in us. And so we live in this whole new way in communion with Christ. Our life doesn't spring from us, it springs from Christ. His redemption breaks through and overtakes our life. (laughs) And he directs us by his spirit now. And so from our side, looking at it from our side, it's this conscious, Christ-oriented life. I live in response to His love for me. I trust in Him because He's the one who loved me and died for me. I put myself in His hands because He's the one who loved me and died for me. And our standing, therefore, with anybody, anybody of any race, anybody of any background, If you're somebody who's been raised in the church, you've always been in the church, and maybe your life is that you don't associate or as little as possible with people outside the church, and then somebody comes along from really rough background in your mind, you know, they've come back from a criminal background, or they come back, they come out of a homosexual lifestyle, they come out of a gross immoral lifestyle, you just name it. And if you can't embrace them and pull them with you and say, Oh, brother, oh, sister, I need the same grace of God. I'm the same broken, the same sinner. Though they may have manifested themselves in different ways, my evil is just the same as yours. I need the same redemption, the same blood of Jesus. And we together have the same inheritance in Christ, the same future kingship in Christ, the same uh, being a part of the family and children of God. Oh, I embrace you gladly. It's my privilege to call you my brother or sister. Or is it this? If it's this, I want to tell you, you are in danger. 
of your very soul. Okay? You're in danger that you don't even begin to understand the gospel. You don't begin to understand your own sin. You don't begin to understand what it means that you're redeemed in Christ Jesus. That's the teaching of this, that our only life, our only life is what we have because of the death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it cannot be something put on a shelf. It has to be something every day to say, this is my definition. I've died to my own crippled, broken, self-focused life that batted itself against the will of God. And now... Through the death of Christ, I've died to that, and now I have a whole new life that's born in His gracious will and His gracious presence in me. That's who we are. That's who we are. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that we will see these things that you set forth here in this passage, things that are, are difficult Difficult to understand in some ways, but Lord, as to the central issues of whether we trust in what we've done or we trust in what Christ has done, whether we see ourselves as better than others and having accomplished some things that put us in tight with God versus what other people have done, or we helplessly take our position with that tax gatherer in Luke 18 and say, honestly, truly, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner, along with every other one who cries out to Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, this, may this set us free. Set us free from self. Set us, set us free from pride. Set us free, Lord, from despising one another. And cause us to be humble and meek and broken given to love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control because we are now governed by the love of Christ. Oh, Lord, and as we continue, as, as we will fail this week in many ways, may we again and again say, I'm justified not by what I do right or wrong ultimately. I'm justified by Jesus Christ who has died for my sins. May this govern all of our thinking, Lord, And not only that we have in you forgiveness, but we have in your death and resurrection a death to our old life and a resurrection to a new life in Christ. Bless us to that end for Jesus' sake. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my life. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?